This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 25th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine became the third largest nuclear power in the world. They gave those nukes up, giving rise to a popular take today that Ukraine should have kept them and perhaps avoided a Russian invasion 30 years later. Cato's Eric Gomez details why that's not quite right. It's very difficult to uh, comment in podcast form on a rapidly evolving situation, which certainly is in Ukraine uh, with respect to Russia. But so I think it's useful to go back in time a little bit and understand a little more about where Ukraine was 20 years ago and uh, what the sort of balance of power, the balance of risk and uh threat that one country could pose to another between Russia and Ukraine since the mid-90s. So take us back in time to the mid-1990s and and give us a sense of the relationship between Ukraine and the recently former Soviet Union. Yeah. So in 91, uh, Ukraine declares independence. A bunch of other Soviet states do likewise. And In three of the former Soviet republics, uh, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, the Soviet Union had deployed a lot of nuclear weapons. Uh, In Ukraine alone, they had in the neighborhood of 1,300 nuclear warheads uh, on strategic delivery systems. And by that, I mean ICBM range stuff, stuff that can hit the US from Ukraine, making it, I believe, the largest Um, Ukraine became the third largest nuclear weapons state overnight, essentially. (laughs) And so you had this situation where in the time period, there was all this momentum behind nuclear disarmament, where the Cold War is coming to an end. There's a lot of political support in the US and, and Russia for getting rid of the weapons and drawing down the arsenal size. And so in this moment, there's a lot of enthusiasm, including in Ukraine, for wanting to get rid of nuclear forces. Uh, and so that extends a couple years, and they eventually come to an agreement to uh, finally get rid of them in, in 94. But yeah, th- there's this interesting moment where Ukraine has this bargaining chip of nuclear forces, and the question becomes, well, what do we do with it, right? Do you just give them back right away, or do you try and get something for them. So, uh, you know, in our conversation before we started recording, you mentioned that Ukraine was not in a very good position to uh, make use of these nuclear weapons. Perhaps that's a good thing, but certainly not in a good position to make use of those nuclear weapons, even as a deterrent. Um, So what happened in 1994 and uh, what was the U.S. role? Exactly. So on on the point about the usability of the weapon. Nuclear weapons need to be very carefully maintained, um, and Ukraine didn't really have the facilities to do that. They didn't have the ability to conduct detailed maintenance work on the forces that were stationed in their country. All of that was back in Russia. Um, They also didn't have operational control over the weapon in the sense that the um, permissive action links or, or things that you use to actually make a warhead usable that are on the missile itself those were controlled from Moscow um, and not the Ukrainian government. So yeah, that's what that's what I mean by they weren't usable. Um, they couldn't be maintained for long periods, and also their operational control wasn't in the hands of Ukraine. 
for what they got from it, this became a sticking point of negotiations between the Ukraine and Russia, and then eventually the U.S. came in. The U.S. perspective on all this is we're very concerned about loose nuclear material after the end of the Soviet Union. There's tons of nuclear weapons lying around, essentially, and we don't want them either being sold off by people to get paid because the state and economy is collapsing. Um, We don't want Soviet scientists to go abroad to countries like Iran or North Korea and give nuclear information in exchange for money. Um, And some of these things are just you know, not very well secured and the military forces protecting them aren't being paid anymore. Um, so that's the the sort of environment. And in that context, the U.S. did a lot, both with Russia and the former Soviet states, including Ukraine, to provide um, economic, uh, like financial support for securing the weapons and moving them out of risky places, and also sending in officials and scientists and experts to monitor and verify these sites and and make them more secure. So that was sort of the U.S. equity in this was we were trying to make sure that we keep a lid on these nuclear weapons in the former Soviet space and prevent them from falling into the wrong hands, essentially. And it was it was arguably very a very, very successful program. Is that the totality of the U.S. upside of that agreement? I there there might be more. I, um, so the other upside from this whole process and takes place over a few years, but um, the big thing to come out of it is something called the Budapest Memorandum, which is signed in, I believe, December of 1994. The Budapest Memorandum offers security guarantees to the former Soviet states that used to have nuclear weapons, such as Ukraine. It basically says the U.S. and Russia and these other states agree that you know the territorial sovereignty of these places is going to be respected and we're not going to try and change borders by force. All of which Russia has violated. <laughs> um, so, so I think that you know, in the moment in the early '90s when this thing was being agreed to, and it stayed in place until 2014 with the uh, Crimea and 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 that sort of issue, it was a pretty effective agreement in that it got the former Soviet states to give up their nukes, it got them into the Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, it it enhanced U.S. Russia and U.S cooperation with these all these countries to help secure the facilities. And so I think there's this tendency right now to say, you know, well, oh, if only the Ukrainians had got to keep the nukes, then this wouldn't be happening. And I think that uh, uh, obfuscates, number one, that it did produce some tangible benefits to Ukraine in the moment that have since, you know, in, with the hindsight of 30 years you know, I, I guess if we knew that Russia was going to violate the Budapest Memorandum 30 years later, maybe you don't do it. But I think the the security gains in the short run were really real and, and really pronounced. And so uh, the argument that Russia is making is that, well, th- those agreements were made a long time ago and those weren't with us. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I mean, that is that is, it does seem to be the argument that they're making. Is that wrong? No, I, I I don't think that's you know I don't think that's an incorrect characterization of how Putin sort of sees this um, this sense of you know Russia being taken advantage of in a moment of weakness and you know, Russia was really weak at the time. I mean you 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 can't if you can't pay your nuclear scientists to like not go abroad and sell their information to other countries for money because you aren't you know, paying them or taking care of their facilities anymore. Yeah, you're a really weak country. Um, And I think that 
you know, but but I, I think that it shouldn't absolve Putin of responsibility. And, you know, you don't get to do that, right? Like in, in international relations, you don't get to just say, oh, well, that was a while ago. So therefore we will, you know, it doesn't count anymore. I mean, countries do that a lot. The U.S. has done it a number of times. Yeah, the U.S. has done it a lot. Yes, the U.S. has done it a lot. Every, this is why I hate, you know, like the moralizing about this stuff is like, oh, this isn't right or this isn't fair or good. And it's like, oh, well, most international politics isn't right, fair or good. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, and now we're we're we are where we are. And um, but I don't think, you know, Ukraine keeping the nukes that it had after the Soviet Union collapsed uh, is this silver bullet solution for preventing what we're seeing today. Eric Gomez is Director of Defense Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.